Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Coming to you from the scenic city in beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world. I want to talk to you about relationships. Relationships are at the core of our lives. They shape the very essence of who we are, our identity, our core values, and they influence our worldview for better or worse. Yeah, they're crucial for us as human beings. And without healthy relationships, we can suffer. Suffer from stress, anxiety, depression. So it should come as no surprise that healthy relationships are at the heart of a successful business. And yet, many work cultures don't promote healthy relationships, but those that do find that they enjoy greater effectiveness. People want to work for those companies. They have great reputations. In a new book released earlier this year titled Relationomics, Business Powered by Relationships, Dr. Randy Ross lays out the principles and practices that will help you develop and sustain the kind of relationships that can build your business and energize your team and also help you build better friendships personally and become a healthier individual. Randy joins us today to share those relationship principles that might just transform your business and change your life. So who is Dr. Randy Ross? Well, he's the founder and chief enthusiasm officer of Remarkable. He is a master of cultural transformation who has traveled internationally as a speaker, coach, and Fortune 500 consultant, building teams, and developing leaders. So let's dive in and learn from a true master. Here's my conversation with Dr. Randy Ross. Randy, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Well, thanks, Marcel. It's good to be with you today. Randy, I always start with this question. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's a great question. I appreciate you asking it. I often tell listening audiences that when I was a little boy, I was firmly convinced that when I grew up, I was going to be Batman and uh, <laughs> you know, fighting evil, uh, doing good. And uh, every day I wake up passionate about being able to impart transformational truths to leaders that will help craft environments that inspire people to bring their best work every day. So literally every day I get up and I'm excited about the opportunity to be able to work with leaders across the country country to craft strong. Fantastic. So let's skim the surface a little bit before we dig down into some of the book's ideas, but tell us why you wrote this book. Why, Why now? Well, it's interesting because there are a lot of books in the marketplace about relationships, uh, but they primarily revolve around relationships with your spouse or relationships with your kids. But there are very few books that are written for business about building healthy relationships. But here's what's interesting, Marcia. We all know that people and organizations thrive in relationally rich environments. Yeah. It's intriguing to me that there are as few healthy cultures that are rich relationally as you might think, because most uh, work environments possess characteristics like self-promotion, self-protection, 
um, their toxic work environments that are driven by fear. Uh, they're power-based. Uh, they may be fraught with uh, unresolved conflict. All those things that completely destroy collaboration, innovation, creativity. And so uh, I wanted to to go back to the basics, as it were, and be able to help leaders put into practice principles that would help them garner better connectivity relationally among their teams and, and quite frankly, help people play better in the sandbox of life. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about how you framed this book. You used four principles to, for us to cultivate healthy relationships. Can you unpack those for us? What are they? Yeah. Well, let me just touch on them briefly. And then if we yeah. want to dive in a little bit deeper, mm-hmm. but the, the four principles are intentionality. And that's the first one. And as we know, we, if we don't, uh, express intentionality about moving things in a positive direction. We all are prone to drift, but when you give in to drift, you never arrive at the desired destination. Matter of fact, you might wind up on a shore that's foreign to you, one you never expected. The way we say it about culture is in organizational life, you're going to have a culture because any place people get together, you're going to have a culture, but that culture will either be by design or by default. If it's by design, then you're constantly thinking about it, trying to improve it and moving it in a positive direction. You're reflecting upon it and taking steps of action to make it better. But oftentimes organizations, they get wrapped up in the details of business, right? Right. Proliferation of spreadsheets, objectives, strategies, the whole nine yards, and they get lost in the details of the business to the point that they don't put relationships at the forefront And when they don't put relationships at the forefront, they may wake up one day and not really like the atmosphere that has evolved over the course of time. So the first thing is you just have to be intentional. So we talk about how can you make it your highest priority? Because I believe that culture is the single most important differentiating factor that any organization possesses. And so every leader must constantly keep their hand on the helm of culture and be thinking about how can we refine it? How can we make it better? That, that's the first principle. The second principle that really truly is profound is just simply that of humility. Mm-hmm. And, uh, humility is often talked about, but, but rarely uh, grasped in terms of what it means. And it's really not that complex. It just means being honest with yourself about yourself. You know, if, if you want to find yourself, you have to do the hard work of being able to release the, that image that you feel like you want to present to the world and really be comfortable in your own skin and lay down all of the self-protectives and self-promotion that you see so often in a politically charged market environment. So humility is the second. And we talk a lot in the book about what that looks like and how humility crafts and shapes our very relationships at the core. The third uh, is powerful. It's accountability. And again, there's a lot of talk about accountability in the marketplace, but often it's approached from a very unhealthy perspective. And so we can talk about that if you want to, but I think this whole idea of trying to uh, create open loops of continuous feedback where we garner the information we need in order to grow, because we talk about the self-deception that's in the marketplace. And uh, that's certainly true. So accountability is the third. And then the, the last is sustainability. What does it look like? to lead in a way that deeply connects with your people, expresses love for them because you have their best interest at heart and literally inspiring them to bring their best to work every day. 
But if we do that, leadership has to be about something more than self-interest and greater than simply self-promotion. Um, and so we talk a lot about what does it mean to look to the long view in terms of healthy leadership style? Yeah. So I want to back up to, I think, a foundational piece, and that is culture. You know, we hear so much about culture. Uh, the famous saying it's attributed to so many people, including Drucker, I think, is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Can you put some parameters around this for us so that it's not loosey-goosey and, uh, and people aren't going down the wrong path about what they think culture is? In your uh, worldview, how would you define culture? Well, great question. First, I back up and I say that culture uh, eats strategy for breakfast lunch, dinner, and a midnight snack. Yeah. Not to say the strategy is not important. It is, but your strategy should always flow out of your value construct. And your value construct is absolutely critical foundationally to your culture. So to define culture in an academic sense, it's the collective expression of the values, the beliefs, and the behaviors that individuals bring to any mm. endeavor. Mm-hmm. And all three of those components are important because oftentimes we just look at the behavior and we say, well, that's, that's culture, but it's not because the behavior is driven by a core belief system and our beliefs have to be aligned. It doesn't mean we have to think alike. As a matter of fact, we can embrace great diversity. It's not about thinking alike, but it's that our beliefs at the very core of who we are express the same values. And that's the third component, your value construct or basically your worldview If we build teams that have consistent, not just embracing of values, but those values are embedded within the very core of who they are and how those are expressed, then that's going to flow over into our beliefs, which will then impact our behavior. Mm. It's the collective expression of that. But a very simple way to put that is it's how we play together in the sandbox of life. Do we build sandcastles together or do we throw sand at each other? You know, do we build in our little corner of the box or do we engage in a collaborative environment where we build great things together? So it's really how we conduct ourselves, how we engage with others and how deeply we connect with others. Okay, so I'm almost at the point of leaving this the culture piece behind, but I want to make sure that listeners really get this. Are you saying that values is what starts the process of defining your culture? Because without values, you can't have the right beliefs and behaviors. Am I on the right track here? Oh, I think you're, you're absolutely spot on because your values form the basis of all human motivation. Okay. Uh, I want to dive into that deeply. There's a philosophical strain called axiology. And axiology is all about value constructs in the universe, value constructs in our world. And it speaks to how we see ourselves, how we see our work, and how we see the world but more importantly, how we see ourselves in our work and in our world. And so it's this idea that it's not just ethical values, but it's functional values as well that create our worldview, which serves as the foundation for human motivational theory. Mm. So not to get too terribly deep, but here's what I would say. Yeah. For any leader out there that still is not convinced that culture is important, or maybe it's on that soft side of the relational piece, I would strongly uh, state that research uh, empirical evidence uh, clearly has established the fact that there is a hard line connection between healthy culture and bottom line results. We've been studying this now for the last two decades, and we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the, the deeper the connectivity of teams, both in customer service and internal service, 
the stronger the return on equity is going to be for any organization. So I would say that it is the single most important factor that any organization possesses. Fantastic, Randy. Okay, so in chapter two, you talk about what you call the great deception, and you paraphrase a story from the Bible. And, you know, whatever religious affiliation you come from or a religious affiliation, there's some some application to any kind of leader in the workplace today. So what is the great deception? <laughs> well, let me back up and sort of frame that because you ask a great question. Um, but Marcel, if you go into any bookstore in our country, the largest section in any bookstore is going to be the self-help. Yeah. That you have more books there on, you know, if you do this, you'll get that, you know, 12 steps to a better life or whatever it happens to be. It's all about self-improvement. Here's the challenge. The vast majority of the self-improvement material that's on the market today completely misses one absolutely essential component. And that's the power of other people in our lives. Yeah. There was a single frame cartoon I remember uh, from some time back. And you may or may not recall Frank and Ernest, but they were two hobos um, and just two vagabonds who you know skipped across the country by train. And there was this one still shot of Frank and Ernest standing by the railroad tracks. And Frank is pulling at his suspenders with great pride. And he says, well, I guess you could just say I'm a self-made man, to which Ernest's reply was, then that clearly demonstrates the horrors of unskilled labor. (laughs) And so I think this whole idea, uh, there's actually a philosophy uh, called Luciferianism. Right. And it's based upon uh, that story that you alluded to in, in Genesis The idea in Luciferianism is that we can attain self-fulfillment and self-enlightenment apart from any other factors, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and by our own initiative, we can reach our full potential. And quite frankly, it's, it's a lie that goes all the way back to the Genesis account. Now, whether or not you buy into Judeo-Christian beliefs or the biblical account or Torah, it really is irrelevant because the story itself it shows us a great picture of the nature of humanity and our pursuit of perfection because we all want to improve. We all desire this sense of self-mastery. But the story that you were alluding to uh, is found in Genesis, and we we call it affectionately the fall. Yeah. (laughs) What happens is Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, uh, this paradise that God had created for them. And everything that they needed to find happiness, fulfillment in their relationship with him and with one another. It was fruitful. It was uh, everything that they needed. But there was clear instruction that they were not to eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that in itself to me is very intriguing because Adam and Eve only had everything that was good. So why would they ever want to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why would you have to have knowledge of evil when you only have knowledge of good? So there's a deep, profound question tucked into the the dilemma from the very beginning. But Satan, in the form of a serpent, appeared, and he challenged both of them. He challenged the woman first, but Adam happened to be there. If you read the narrative closely, he's sort of slinking in the shadows. But Satan poses the The question, did God really tell you that you couldn't touch the fruit, which in itself was a bit of a twist. 
and it comes to full front knowledge, as Eve said, we can't eat from the tree. And Satan said, of course, because in the day that you eat of it, you will become like God. Mm -hmm. So here's the interesting part. The proposal, the deception that led to the fall was this idea that you can become God-like. In other words, you can attain fulfillment, your full potential. You can become God-like without a relationship with God. In the same way, the deception is we can, by our own personal initiative and our own wherewithal, elevate ourselves to a point of fulfillment, enlightenment, perfection, apart from any other outside influence in our lives, which is just simply not the case. Because let me put it to you very simply, we all have blind spots. Blind spots, by their very definition, are things that you don't see about yourself that other people do see. Right. And so we have to have the input of other people in our lives in order for us to be knowledgeable of the wake that we're leaving that sometimes we simply are not cognizant of. And, mm. and oftentimes leaders are moving at such a rapid pace that they never really slow down long enough to smell their own exhaust. And so we need feedback. We need the presence of other people in our lives to help us grow into the people that we need to be. And that's, that's what we call maturity. It's how well do we relate to other people in our world? And we can't relate more effectively if we have blind spots in our lives and it requires the input of other people to help us grow. So in essence, our personal fall happens when we isolate ourselves from community and being around other people who can help us go further and, and faster in life. Well, absolutely. Yeah. But it's also one of the biggest failures of leadership because Marcel, in my opinion, Far too few leaders stop long enough to ask the people in their charge, hey, what is it like for you to be on the other side of me? Hmm. You know, what do you see in me that I could improve? How can I be a better leader for you? What obstacles can I clear? What do you need from me right now in order for me to support you in the way that's necessary for you to achieve your dreams? And very few leaders stop long enough to ask the question. We're so intent on providing performance reviews, yeah. never slow down long enough to ask those in our charge, help me grow. Mm. Man, I so want to jump to the humility principle, but I'm going to stop short because I want to touch on what you and I know, you know, it's well documented that people quit managers, not their companies. And Gallup has been banging on that drum for decades now. And so the, the relationship between manager and employee is so crucial for engagement, retention, and the well-being of employees to thrive in, in the workplace. So what it comes down to me is what you write about, and that is trust. Trust is that commodity of leaders. And I, that was a direct quote, by the way. Trust is the commodity of leaders. I want to touch on that. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by trust is a commodity? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and, and I would go back and I would just add a slight addendum to what you said, because people, you're right, don't quit jobs. They quit managers, but I would say they quit cultures. Mm. People quit cultures, but who's responsible for the culture? Everyone is, but more specifically, the manager is. So if a manager is not leading well with intentionality, if a manager doesn't have his or her hand on the helm of culture, if they're not guiding it and directing it to improve, what we see is that people quit cultures. They'll quit 
on the leader of that culture. They'll quit on the culture itself because people in that culture are not interacting in a healthy way that promotes good, healthy creativity and collaboration. So back to your point about trust, before anyone chooses to follow us, there are three questions they ask. The first question is, can I trust this individual? Uh, In other words, when push comes to shove, do they have the moral fiber? Do they have the ethical uh, stance and the integrity to do what's right, even if it's difficult to do? Or are they going to throw someone else under the bus when push comes to shove? So can I trust this person? The second question they ask is, can I count on this person? Does this person have the knowledge, the skill, the competency to get us to the next level, to give leadership to this team? And then the third one, the most important one that a lot of people ask, and these are not questions that they actually formally throw out there, but they're, they're processing it all internally. The third question is, does this person have my best interest at heart? And all that begins with trust because trust is foundational for all human relationships. I mean, you you can't really uh, work with someone you don't trust. You certainly can't live with someone you don't trust. And so I do say trust is the commodity of leadership, meaning that um, if we continue to work on developing atmospheres of trust, then we're making deposits literally into other people's emotional bank accounts that then we can draw from because where trust is high, resistance is low. Now, people are willing to follow. They're willing to give the benefit of the doubt. They're willing to exert effort to accomplish a common objective. But where trust is low, resistance is always high. And in those environments, then change and progress doesn't come very quickly if it comes at all because people are dragging their feet, they're second-guessing leadership, they demonstrate passive-aggressive behavior, or or they just all-out resist the direction that the organization wants to go because there are low levels of leadership. So here's what I tell leaders all the time. If you're experiencing extreme levels of resistance against your leadership, you have to call a timeout, and you have to go back and figure out, okay, where did we lose trust? Yeah. Because you have to fill that emotional bank account back up so that trust is at a high level before fellowship is granted. Yeah, I love where this is going because for those people that are not calling the timeout, it's a blind spot. So let's address the blind spot right now. What can they know that they may be doing, they're not even aware of, that erodes trust? Yeah, well, let me reverse that and say that mm-hmm. I think that it garners trust more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, let's call it the art of leadership, and let's use that as an acrostic, okay? A-R-T. Uh, that consists of authenticity, okay, reality, and transparency. So, so let me define those. Authenticity is simply being truthful with yourself about yourself. It's feeling comfortable in your own skin, no matter how freckled with failure it may be. So authenticity is this idea that I can embrace my strengths. I know how to leverage my strengths. I know what I'm really good at, but I also know what I'm not so good at. I know what I'm not passionate about as much as I know what I am passionate about. I know what my competencies are. I know where I need to entrust other people and bring other people onto my team to round out those areas where I may be lacking. I think one of the greatest failures of leadership is to pretend that we can be all things to all people and get all things done. And we can't. There's no human on the planet who can. 
the best leaders are those who lead out of a position of their strengths, but they acknowledge that in order for us to be complete and robust, we have to surround ourselves with other people that are better than we are in certain areas. And so it's a, the idea of synergy and combining our efforts for a greater outcome. Um, and so authenticity is the first part, being honest with yourself about yourself. The second piece is just dealing at all times in reality, calling it what it is. And there's a favorite quote of mine in the book by Edwin Friedman that says this, the person who can most accurately describe reality without casting blame will emerge as the leader, whether designated or not. Mm. And it's essentially what we're saying is that, that so many leaders, um, and just think about our political uh, atmosphere today. So many leaders change their opinions, change their platform based upon the polls of public opinion, yeah. rather than standing true to the reality of what actually is. And so good leaders, they don't spin, they don't hedge, they don't create an alternate reality. They call it what it is, and they speak very clearly because here's the key, Marcel, reality will always show up. Mm. It always does. It may not be today or tomorrow or next week, but reality will show up. And whoever most accurately describes reality when it appears will gain credibility. Wow. If our description of reality does not mesh with the reality when it does appear, we lose credibility. So leaders have to deal in truth and reality and address it unabashedly, unapologetically. We are called to speak and live the truth. That's the second part, because the more, more closely we align with the truth, the more credibility we have with our people, the more trust is established. And the third thing is transparency. And transparency, if authenticity is being honest with yourself about yourself, reality is being honest about the circumstances and about life, and transparency is being honest with others about yourself and about life and about the situation. So transparency means that we're not hiding anything. It's an open book, um, which is critically important because in organizational life, whenever there's a vacuum in communication and there's low levels of trust, people will tend to fill that vacuum, not with expecting the best, which is what we want them to do, but rather creating the worst. Right. So we can either expect the best or predict the worst and people will predict the worst in low trust environments. So the art of leadership, authenticity, reality, and transparency. But then I also like to say, if an organization or leadership lacks reality, they don't deal in, in reality, they aren't authentic and they're not transparent. You flip those and now you have RAT. People begin to smell a rat mm. <laughs> because those three components are not in place. That's wonderful. I love that. Okay, so let's talk about humility, which is the second principle in your book. You know, so hard to define humility and so even more difficult to measure it. But uh, how would you define humility, Randy? Yeah, humility is just very, very simply, it's being comfortable with who you are, both your strengths and your weaknesses. Leveraging your strengths, acknowledging your weaknesses, feeling comfortable in your own skin and just being real. Yeah. That's what humility is, being honest with yourself about yourself. Yeah. So what's what's the importance? What's the impact of humility in building great relationships? Well, we talk a lot in the book about uh, the accumulation of debris in leadership. And um, oftentimes in 
in highly political environments in the marketplace, you, you see a lot of pretense. So you see a lot of posturing, you see a lot of self-promotion. Um, when there's a problem, you see people uh, self-protecting. They'll cast aspersions on others or try to defer responsibility for certain things. And, and so I think that what diminishes trust and where there's a lack of humility, people are constantly trying to manage their image as opposed to trying to lead from a place of humility. And it's interesting, Marcel, the more I work with senior leaders, I think there seems to be among those who lack authenticity, uh, a fear um, that really drives a lot of their performance. And it's this nagging idea or this nagging question that hangs heavy in the back of their mind that goes like this, how long will it be until they discover I'm not everything I purport to be? Hmm. And there are a lot of leaders who literally live with that fear of exposure. But if you're living an authentic life, if you're being transparent with those that you lead, then it does nothing but engender trust. And that trust builds a healthy, strong fiber of relational connectivity. Because when I'm honest with you, when I'm authentic, when I'm genuine, then it just allows us to cut through all the superficial posturing and the pretense and really get down to the heart of the matter and connect more deeply. And I think that's the, the essence of humanity. It's realizing that we're all broken. Uh, none of us are perfect, but we all want to move toward maturity. So what does that look like? None of us are mature. None of us are complete. But what does it mean to connect deeply and move toward maturity together? And that's the essence of the book. That's what it means to build healthy relationships where we help each other grow. Yeah. And it, to me, it's so tied back to authenticity, uh, humility, that is. But, you know, Randy, humility, there's so many nuances tying humility to touchy-feely and too soft and too fuzzy. How do we take that out of that stigma that it is too soft? Because I believe that humility is a leadership powerhouse. So for people listening going, oh, man, I can't be humble in my workplace. I will be walked all over you know, by my employees and, and uh, customers and other stakeholders. So let's take humility out of the touchy-feely world. And how would you say this is how you practice humility in a way that doesn't come across as soft or weak? Yeah. Well, we, we spent a great deal of time talking in the book about creating value for others. So uh, let me kind of wrap this together and go back and, and talk about the cultural dynamic. We, we, we talk about a remarkable culture as an environment that, that has three characteristics. Uh, it's a place where people believe the best in one another. So therefore they want the best for one another and they expect the best from one another. So here's the dynamic of humility in a healthy environment. Um, we, we believe the best in each other that speaks to trust. And you and I have already covered trust, you know, fairly well. Mm. That's where all relational activity begins. But if we trust each other, if we believe the best in one another, then we should want the best for one another. That means that I want to see you grow. I want to see you develop. I want to work together effectively with you on a team, realizing that if we all bring more to the table than we take away, that at the end of the day, there'll be a surplus on the table that everybody who helped create that value can enjoy. That's the second piece. But the third piece is about accountability. 
And accountability means that that um, we are responsible both relationally, but we're also responsible for results. We, we call the best out of one another. Humility is this idea that I'm not only comfortable with me, but I'm comfortable with you. See, there are things that you do far better than I do. And it doesn't take long in relationship to discover those things. And so if I'm a good leader, if I lead with humility, I don't have to pretend to be the smartest person in the room. As a matter of fact, I very quickly can defer to others who have expertise in an area that may not be my particular you know, inclination um, or my passion point. And if I can do that as a leader, if I can demonstrate humility, humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself or even thinking of yourself less. It doesn't, doesn't mean either one of those. It means that you think of yourself in the right way so that you can connect effectively with other people in order to accomplish extraordinary results. So mm-hmm. you, you do things better than I do. I do things better than you do. And whoever else is in the room brings their own mix of talents and gifts and experience to the table. And that's why together, a, a leader who demonstrates humility not only can serve to bring out the best in other people, but can serve the team well by rallying them together to bring more to the table than they take away and create value for others. That drives hardline results. Mm. And so, uh, the leader who's fearful of the presence of other powerful, productive people, that's what dismantles productivity. So when we talk about humility, it is, as you said, it's, it's a powerhouse because it's a powerful concept of being able to leverage the best that every single person brings to the table. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's segue into the accountability part. So you, there's a, a chapter in the book under the accountability principle where you talk about some rules of engagement and holding yourself accountable to, you know, to maintain really healthy relationships. Can you touch on some of those rules of engagement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because one of the things I think that's present in a lot of work environments that breeds toxicity is unresolved conflict. We talk about the necessity to be able to both receive and provide very strong, healthy developmental feedback for individuals. But oftentimes in the workplace, gossip uh, is present. You know, people are being petty and criticizing other people. There's jealousy. There's backbiting, backstabbing. There there are a lot of very unhealthy things that, that are taking place when it comes to destroying relational connectivity. And so there are five rules of engagement that we set forth in the book that would help any organization resolve their conflict. Uh, and I'm not talking about managed conflict. Nobody's interested in managing conflict, but, but resolving conflict. And the term rules of engagement actually is a military term, as I'm sure you and your listening audience are very aware. But uh, rules of engagement speaks to Uh, how one military force enters into and engages in conflict with another military force in a civilized manner in which it minimizes civilian casualties or unintentional uh, devastating uh, impact of military warfare. So uh, what we want to do is we want to take similarly rules of engagement relationally and minimize the civilian damage. We want to curtail um, uh, toxic environments. And, and so the first rule is the most simple and probably the most profound because Marcel, if, if organizations or people would simply commit to the very first rule, 
I would say the vast majority of conflict in the marketplace would completely evaporate. Mm. And here's the first rule of engagement. I commit to you that I will talk to you before I ever talk about you. Yeah. Um, it's a very simple idea, but it's very um, limited in terms of its practice in the marketplace because oftentimes when people get frustrated or irritated, there's a fence. Something's taking place to throw things sideways relationally. We're, we're much more inclined to go to a third party and state our case, right, to complain or to criticize or gossip to a third party to someone who neither had anything to do with creating the problem, nor can they do anything to resolve the issue. So the first thing we have to do is if, if anybody has a problem with anybody, <laughs> they need to go to that person, put on their big boy pants or the big girl skirt and go to that person directly and sit down and try to talk out the issue because it never does anything productive to bring other people into that mix. As a matter of fact, there's a, a proverb that says that um, uh, spreading gossip is like grabbing a sleeping dog by the ears. Uh, it will eventually bite you. And so it's much, much better to go directly to the person with whom you have the concern or you have the issue and sit down in a mature way, try to address the, the issues that got you off course and try to get back to a place of deeper understanding resolving the issues and ultimately to, to unity. So that's the first one. The others fall in line behind that. Um, the second one is I'll engage in every conversation with a spirit of humility, knowing that I too have room to grow. The third rule of engagement is if we by chance come to an impasse, then we will get an objective third party to come in and serve as a mediator because sometimes we just need that outside input to work through whatever relational problems there may be. Um, the fourth one is we'll stay engaged until we resolve the issues, knowing that the end result should be unity, that we don't have to have uniformity, but unity means we may not be like-minded, but we're going to leave like-hearted. Yeah. It's like-heartedness. And then the fifth one is we will forgive quickly. So when there is an offense, once we talk it through and come to resolution, we'll let it go. We'll not hold on to that grudge, which only serves to embitter uh, the spirit. So those are uh, profound rules of engagement that if you want more information about, you can read it in the book, but they're, I would say they're probably um, critical, uh, essential to helping resolve workplace conflict. Mm, and I can't help but tie a lot of those things back to being authentic, being transparent, and really living in your own reality. So I'm thinking of uh, of how um, those rules of engagement actually lead to trust when you practice them in a healthy way. Well, absolutely. Because if you, if you allow things to go underground, uh, it erodes trust. Yeah. If you leave uh, issues unresolved, there can be bitterness and frustration. And so uh, back to your question earlier, one of the things that you can do to ensure a higher level of trust is to help people resolve their conflict quickly. Yeah. Randy, we talk here a lot about love and fear. And I always ask my guests this question. How does lead? Well, actually, let me ask you personally this question, because this applies directly to you in your book. How does leading through fear actually affect relationships with those you lead? It's good for the short term, right? <laughs> well, you no, know, fear undoubtedly can give you quick results. 
Um, and that's why I think some leaders are prone to turn to fear or power-based leadership tactics because they know in the short term it will garner the results that they want. The problem is long-term, it destroys relationships because nothing of long-term personal um, or positive effect ever takes place through fear uh, or force for that matter, because you can force people for a season to do something, but ultimately they're always going to fall back to what they want to do, or they're going to fall back to their value construct. So nothing of long lasting positive impact ever happens through force. So I think the idea is that uh, we have to uh, inspire people. We have to draw out the very best that resides within them. But fear-based leadership always unravels and never gets you the results that you want. Yeah. So here's that uh, existential question I always ask my guests, and that is, why do you think fear is still so prevalent in how businesses are managed when we know that the principles that you write about, the principles of love and care, which is so packed with evidence out there, um, ultimately lead to things like trust and, and business outcomes. Yeah. So I think the reason for that is because a lot of leaders uh, live under the pressure of fear. Mm. A lot of people live out their fears rather than pursuing their dreams. And, and leaders, like we alluded to earlier, some leaders who uh, aren't leading in an authentic sort of a way um, are trying to promote an image that is probably um, a projection of themselves in the most positive way, which tries to eliminate their flaws, their faults, or their failures. And the, the problem with that is you can't prop that image up for very long. It, it will always be dismantled. It will always decompose. It will always, you know, deconstruct. And so when, when leaders try to maintain this image of perfection or, the sphere of exposure, then it makes them have to then lead those around them with fear because they themselves are leading themselves with fear. So it's a matter of getting in touch with who you are, embracing who you are, and then being able to lead out of authenticity that allows yourself to be human and it allows others to be human as well. And we embrace our faults and our frailty while at the same time we are absolutely intent on helping move people toward maturity. Mm. So culture change, as we know, will take a few seasons. It doesn't, there's no magic pill, right. but for those leaders at the top of the food chain, at the C-suite level that want to change from a fear-based culture to a culture of belonging and care and love, is there a first step? Well, the first step is that you have to embrace and embody the very thing that you want to see demonstrated. Yeah, uh, you know, to become the change you want to see in the world, um, you have to lead by example. It yeah. has to start at the very core of who you are. Until that shift takes place, everything else is going to be superficial. And so, in order for it to be substantive, we don't just have to embrace this. We, we literally have to embody it. Uh, it has to become a very real part of who we are. And one of the best places, we talk about this a little bit in the book, one of the best places we can see our leadership style is in our home. Mm. You know, our, it, it is indeed our homework in order to prepare ourselves to become professionally more productive. 
Because you can see in the way that you lead your children, you can see in the way that your spouse responds. Um, you can see literally on your spouse's face, you know, whether or not you as a spouse are leading in the home effectively. And I can't tell you how many times sitting down with senior leaders and having them assess their own closest relational sphere, which is their home, assessing that and being honest about how those relationships have either been strengthened or have deteriorated, have helped them learn lessons and gain insights that help them be more productive at work. Mm. So I know I'm totally biased, but you have a whole chapter on leading with love. So from a business standpoint, you, you do use a lot of great examples and some practical examples of doing exactly that, leading with love. Can you share some of those? Yeah, well, a few just off the top of my head. Um, when we talk about leading with love, it, it's not warm and fuzzy. It's really about having someone else's best interest at heart. Yeah. Throughout the book, we talk about providing feedback that will help people grow because the purpose of any good feedback is always to help someone grow, not just to get something off your chest. So every coaching conversation should be designed to help people grow. And so some of the things that you can share to help people grow are first your time. Your time is the most precious commodity that you have. So taking the time to sit down and help individuals, whether that's with a, a project with a personal problem by giving feedback or insight or counsel, just giving them your undivided attention is one of the greatest gifts that you can give. Now, granted, as leaders with our span of care, as large as it is, we have a limited amount of time that we can designate to that. But what I would say is whether it's one minute, five minutes, or 10 minutes, when you're with that person, be in the moment, be present, give them your full undivided attention so that they think even for that short period of time, they are the most important person on right. the planet to you. And I think that's the, the case because you can't give exorbitant amounts of time, but the time that you can give needs to be unfettered, undistracted. So you can give your time. You can give your, your knowledge. Um, you have experiences, you have you know, an educational background, you have things that you know, and you can pass your knowledge along. I think sometimes people are reluctant to share their knowledge, but it's, it's our knowledge that sets us apart as a subject matter expert. And the more freely we share that knowledge so that others can grow, the more we are positively impacted as a result of that. You know, John Templeton and so many others have said the fastest way to success is to ensure the success of those underneath you, because as you help others grow, you yourself will grow. Uh, another thing that you can share is your relationships. Most people are three introductions away from success. So I know people that you should know, you know, people that I should know. And as a net weaver, which is vastly different than a networker, as a net weaver, I should always be engaging in conversations with the idea and the thought, who can I introduce Marcel to who has a common interest, to, who may have resources, who may have experience that would benefit you to accomplish your goals and your dreams and your objectives. So we can share our relationships. We can also share our affection and our appreciation. And uh, I know that uh, you've had other guests on the show before talking about, you know, uh, words of affirmation and how do we express appreciation to provide maximum 
effectiveness. And I think, again, that's one of the things that we can share is our appreciation with mm-hmm. them. So there are very strong, tangible things that we can do to demonstrate love in the marketplace when we want to uh, invest in others in a way that will help them grow and call out the very best of who they are. Mm. Randy, this has been such a great conversation full of wisdom and insight. I want to bring it home with a couple of questions and uh, where you get a chance to just kind of speak your mind and uh, tell us what's, you know, what's in your heart. So is there anything that you personally would like our listeners to know? Well, I think this whole idea of relational connectivity and seeking feedback is absolutely essential. Um, And so just to have a little fun here, I, I would encourage your listeners to seek input from those who are closest to them on how they can improve because feedback is the lifeline of leadership. Uh, And even we talked about being intentional. Um, One of the things that you can do even with your spouse is to ask two simple questions, Marcel. The first one is this on a scale of one to 10, you pick the topic on a scale of one to 10. how, How am I doing? So let's just say with your spouse, you know, you pick those areas that are of common interest, communication, time together, intimacy, parenting, finances, choose any one of those. And if it was communication, I would say to my wife, Luann, all right, baby, you know, right now on a scale of one to 10, how am I doing in our communication with one another? And I just let her rate it. And it really doesn't matter how she rates it. That's almost irrelevant because the follow-up question is where the the impact lies. And the follow-up question is, okay, well, if I score a six, seven or eight, whatever that is, I know we both want to be at a 10. So what would it take to move our relationship from that seven to a 10? That's invaluable feedback. And so whether you ask questions like that of a colleague or a spouse or even your kids, my challenge to everybody is seek to continually grow by asking for feedback in areas that will improve your connectivity, improve your relationships, improve your performance feedback is rarely given well and rarely received well. Mm. A big part of the book that we, we emphasize is how do you both receive and give feedback? So I'm passionate about helping people improve. Um, organizationally, you know, we talk about 360 degree feedback as yep. a tool to help leaders advance But it strikes me as intriguing that we've had to institutionalize something like feedback that should come naturally if we're engaged in healthy relationships. Mm, Wow. And so I think if we could create open loops of continuous feedback throughout the organization where everybody is free to give feedback to anybody else, then we create organizations that become not only self-coaching, but self-correcting. And when we have self-coaching and self-correcting organizations, you'll see performance shoot through the roof. Wow, that's profound, Randy. Well, you get to end this uh, interview your way. Is there one thing you'd like our listeners to absolutely walk away with that's going to make a difference in their lives? (laughs) Well, I think this, uh, this whole idea that people and organizations thrive in relationally rich environments to continue to keep the emphasis on relationships because that's the heart and the soul of healthy business and healthy homes. Um, there's a long study conducted over the last 75 years by Grant and Gluck um, out of Harvard. And after 75 years of watching those who've grown into their 80s and 90s and lived happy, productive lives, 
there's a single element that has emerged from this study. And Robert Waldinger, the, the director of the study, just simply says this. The one thing that we've learned after 75 years of research is that good relationships keep us healthy and keep us happy, period. Hmm. That's it. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that, but it is as complex as that because, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know how to do relationships well in a healthy way. So yeah. my passion is to help people grow to have healthy relationships. And my passion is to help organizations create healthy cultures where people can thrive, not just survive, but thrive and be happy, healthy, and productive. Well stated. So Randy, if you, people want to connect with you, where do they go? Well, it's real easy. Uh, DrRandyRoss.com. Um, that's our website. We have an additional website at createremarkable.com. That's our corporate website. But if they're interested in the books, if they're interested in having me come and spend time with their teams or a speaking engagement, then drrandyross.com is the best place to reach me. It's been a blast. Thank you for a compelling conversation. Marcel, thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, been good to be with you today. Likewise. So here's what's on my mind after that conversation with uh, Randy Ross. I get this a lot. People come to my consulting firm, you know, asking us to change their culture and, and design a better culture. So when I start to diagnose the health of an organization through our assessments and interviews, I'm like, are you kidding me? Nobody likes each other here because nobody is talking to one another. So much time is spent on designing the right culture by getting wrapped up in the strategy, the KPIs, the objectives, you know, focusing on the metrics and the details of the business. But to Randy's point, we don't put relationships at the forefront. If leaders don't put relationships at the forefront of the business, people may wake up one day and realize, you know what? I don't like the atmosphere here. People don't care about me. They don't understand me. They don't... They're not investing in my development, in my future. In fact, they don't really know who I am. To them, I'm just a worker bee. Is that how you feel? Because I've been there. And you know what? At every level of the hierarchy, people probably feel the same way. Your manager is getting it from his or her superior. Whatever you're feeling about the environment you're in, that you're not valued, chances are pretty good that your manager feels the same way. That's why we, as leaders, have to be thinking about how to refine the culture and make it consistently better. And we make it better by developing relationships. We make it better by helping people feel like they belong, like you care about them, about their development. You know, Cheryl Batchelder, former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, says something simple and profound. I must know you to grow you. Thanks for listening, Love and Action Nation. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Join us next week when I chat with Dan Cable, professor of organizational behavior at London Business School, to talk about his fascinating new book, Alive at Work. See you next time. And don't forget, Love and Action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, Love and Action Nation, if you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, 
and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.